The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is special guest Carol Roth, who's always been a great, great in terms of providing a strong voice and perspective from the ground up here. So, Carol, I appreciate the time as usual. Before we get too deep, I think just uh, real quick, set the stage for the audience on who you are, your background, and how's the new book going? <laughs> well, Michael, it's a pleasure to be back. I think this might be like our fourth conversation. Always a great one for people who don't know me. Uh, I am a recovering investment banker, the author of a couple books, including The War on Small Business, an entrepreneur, an outsourced chief customer officer. I play myself on TV and I have my own action figure. So I guess the best way to wrap that all up is a collector of experiences and thrilled to, to be here with you in this wild news day. I've also, I think this is my, my second of three media hits today that we're going to be covering this particular topic. But the book has done really well, you know, and it's an unfortunate story to have to tell. I'm sorry that I have to be the one to, to tell it. But obviously, what happened over the last couple of years with the most historic wealth transfer that we've ever seen from Main Street to Wall Street has been been an underreported topic. And I think as all of these long tail issues have come out of some of the decisions that were made over the last couple of years, things like inflation and the disruption of the labor market and the disruption of the supply chain, some of the outcomes of energy policy and the like, it's just one of those things that becomes more and more relevant. So I'm thrilled that I had the opportunity to document it for history, but at the same time, wish I didn't have to document it for history. All right. So let's, before we talk about small business, let's talk about mega business, which is Twitter here. And, and I, I, I saw a couple of tweets that got quite a bit of engagement uh, on your end. I'm sharing in the space here, but I want to, I want to hear your thoughts on first, how do you view Twitter as a platform, Musk, I think, if you go with the sort of old hierarchy of needs, is at the self-actualization point in his life where maybe he really doesn't care about making money. He doesn't want to use it as a as a vehicle for free speech. But how do you view Twitter as a as a platform for getting alternative views out and the way Twitter has arguably acted against certain accounts that some would argue were not really dangerous? Yeah. So leaving the business model stuff aside, just in terms of the platform, what I find so interesting about Twitter is it is 
that place for news and particularly breaking news and information that really, if you think about the, the term social media, it really is much more like a media company than it is, you know, sort of a, a social business, if you think about the, the competitors in those spaces. And it's, it's a very unique property. If something happens, you will hear about it first on Twitter and probably get all of the angles. And so it's very, very valuable, you know, from that aspect and sort of a, a non-monetary aspect. And it's very powerful. As somebody who believes in individual rights and the concept of free speech, Speech. And I do say, you know, sort of concept or principle, you know, different than the First Amendment, which obviously is is pr- the government protecting the free speech, you know, particularly from the government. But I think that taking that same set of principles, you know, you can't do things that will that are calls for violence or, or that are illegal. But other than that, just the open discourse, I think, is healthy for society. And if you have good ideas or even bad ideas, those should be debated in an open public forum. And I think that the challenge with Twitter, you know, as a quote unquote moderator of content, they're supposed to be providing the platform, but they wanted to kind of, you know, direct from a morality standpoint the conversations that they have. And so there are things that have been mislabeled as or labeled as misinformation that were in fact not. There are people who've had the rules of Twitter applied on a sort of non-consistent basis against them. And it does seem to at least anecdotally appear that that happens more often on one side of the political spectrum than the other. And then just in general, you know, if you think about the concept of, you know, digital rights and ownership, of accounts and and how we have sort of a path to redemption, you know, there really hasn't been, you know, whether it's for Twitter or other platforms, you know, any way that if you've gotten sideways to say, well, you know, how 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 do I have a path to redemption a year later or two years later or five years later? I mean, there are people who've just been completely banished into the ether sphere. So I think there's a huge opportunity to, you know, right the scale and, and to really be at the forefront of digital rights, you know, not just for the Twitter platform, but setting something forth that, you know, everyone in tech can sign on to without government interference. Okay, so I want to go to the term that you use, which is, you know, it seems that certain sides of the political spectrum get more scrutiny, maybe let's call it. And maybe that's debatable, maybe not, but let's, let's go with that for a moment. What that would imply, of course, is that Twitter's become much more blue than red, or maybe always was. What what happened that, why is it that you think now we're at a point where social media platforms, almost like standard news organizations, they tend to be either red or blue? When did that happen that you now have apps based on your your political <laughs> leanings? It's, it's just a strange concept to me. So I think something happened in media, which started with the 24-7 news cycle, and I think led over into social media, where we are now consuming news, and in many cases, political news on an ongoing basis. And I think that people have approached politics, some people as a, you know, like a sport and some people like a religion. And it has become, you know, about these teams. And that's, that's part of what people consider their identity. I mean, I, I go back to when I was growing up and, you know, it wasn't really a topic that. I ever had a conversation about with people, you know, outside my family or whatnot. And I just think that has become part of the zeitgeist. I think some of it 
is intentional. I think that the the higher ups in the government love the fact that we are preoccupied with pointing the finger at each other because it keeps us from pointing the finger back at them. And, you know, it's it's kind of the, the distraction, the bread and circuses, if you will, of the masses. And so I feel like that's sort of what's happened in the social zeitgeist. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the unfortunate thing about Twitter is it really is a broadcast platform. It's not one where nuance is particularly strong or reading comprehension. <laughs> for that matter. And so, you know, you don't get the sort of the deep dive discussions. And I think when nuance is taken out of the, the conversation, you you end up with these sort of very, you know, one side or of the spectrum, the other side of the spectrum views. And I think that's added to the dysfunction as well. So I, uh, <laughs> I put out a tweet uh, April 14th, and I said, uh, guaranteed Elon Musk wants Twitter so he can Deplatform every politician who wants to tax him. It's, it's a cheaper option, right? Okay, so and, and I'm saying that partially be funny, but also because I, I do wonder if Twitter a year from now, if there's almost the opposite effect that people get nervous about speaking up against the Elon Musk's of the world because. Well, if you piss off the guy who owns the company, he can kick you off the platform. Yeah, I think that's a real concern. And it's why for the people who have been so excited about this, it's an exciting opportunity, but we have to go into this with cautious optimism. I think that you know, it creates a very interesting opportunity to, to create a, a new set of, of digital rights and rules for the platform. But I think that it's going to be incumbent upon uh, you having it sort of the right team approach that does that. And also, you know, to the extent, I mean, no, you can't rein in Elon Musk, but putting in some parameters and guidelines that at least he agrees to in principle, and that basically calls that out up front. Like, listen, you know, you can't, you don't become what it is that you hate. Don't, don't let what drove you to buy this, you know, don't turn into that. And let's just up front make sure that we agree that if people do X, Y, and Z, that you're not going to be retaliatory about it. And, you know, again, it's like any concentration of power, you do run that risk. But, you know, at this point, I think we have to focus on trying to push forward the appropriate principles and hopefully have something that's a bit more open and transparent and focused on digital rights. Okay, so that's actually a really good bridge to the next area to focus on, which is you use the word concentration, and every small business owner has to have a concentration on whatever they're selling. And usually it's one product or two products until they get to size and they can expand. For me, when I see Elon Musk taking Twitter, I worry about if I have too much concentration of my own brand on Twitter with the number of followers that I have, same with you, number of followers you have, versus other platforms where it's a lot less. That's part of the reason for the last month <laughs> I've been now turning it up on YouTube and doing these podcasts and editing them to put on my YouTube channel is to diversify under under the scenario that here's my small business, it's on a platform, but the platform may be changing in a way that I may not actually thrive in. Talk about how you think small business owners need to think about concentration risk and when the time would be to start thinking about diversifying whatever service or product you're selling. 
So I'm going to take that in two parts. Um, the first part is, you know, in relation to social platform concentration. This is a, a really big deal for not only small businesses, but for individuals, because we are entering we're actually, you know, kind of at the early stages of a technocracy, while where a lot of the things that you think you own you don't actually own. Like I'm dialing in right now on a phone. I own the hardware, but I don't own the operating system. And at any point in time, if I say something or do something and somebody thinks it's the wrong thing, they can completely shut off that operating system. And I don't have access to the phone that I purchased anymore. So I think that these are all you know, related to property rights and digital right types of issues that we should all be thinking about in terms of technology and sort of the next wave of growth that we're all going to be facing. I think from a small business standpoint, you know, on the social front, it's really important, you know, like any other business, but to be in the places where your customer, your target customers are and where they are receptive to having the conversations about your business or being interrupted with information about your business. And that's not the same type of location, same social media platform for every business. So it's really, really dependent. And and it does make sense to sort of double down, but then you also do have that risk, you know, of, hey, you do the wrong thing and you get sideways. I think in terms of small businesses, broader business, particularly given the fact that we are in a, a very precarious economic situation today for small business and for their customers and um, the outlook is not particularly rosy, that it does make sense when you have existing customers to figure out how many other things you can sell them, how you can get them to buy from you more frequently, how you can get them to be advocates for your business, because it's much easier to leverage those customers who already love what you're doing than it is to source a new customer in the landscape that we have today. Yeah, no, I, I, it's just, it's, to me, it's always one of those things where it's just very hard to know when you start shifting your your energy to new products. And then if you happen to do so, if it's also at the wrong time, and then you're limited by resources. And it's hard to know exactly when in a journey building a business to really kind of lean into other things. It's just given the limited amount of time and resources we all have. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about the shit show, uh, which is the economy <laughs> and uh, the way labor has, has, I think, which is a direction we can go, how labor unions now are kind of getting more and more uh, momentum, I think. I want to hear your take on if you believe that this is truly a strong labor economy, labor-driven economy, given we keep hearing about rising rate wages, but it's not as much as inflation. Riff on sort of the state of this cycle versus prior ones that you've you've looked at. Well, we've never seen anything like this. You know, the policy decisions that were made during COVID led to an exacerbated supply-demand mismatch in the labor market to the point where we now have 1.8 open jobs available for every job seeker that's out there. And part of what happened you know, were just all of these people coming out of the labor force. You had about 3 million people who prematurely retired, likely on the back of the fact that their 401ks were doing very well and their increased home values, and they just felt that that was an appropriate exit point. 
We have about 2 million legal immigrants shy of where we were projected to have based on immigration policy over the last couple of years. You know, if we had that trajectory from where we were in 2019, they projected about 2 million more legal immigrants in this country. And then we just had people, you know, structurally deciding to leave the workforce because, you know, they didn't want to, you know, they didn't want to work or because they decided they were going to sell on Etsy or become crypto traders or, you know, a whole sort of slew of of reasons. So while it is a great time to be a job seeker, I would say the labor market in and of itself, you know, is is you know, really struggling. And I think it's going to be very difficult, even if, you know, for very bad reasons, increased inflation and whatnot, it does get some of those people off the sidelines, you know, who opted out, even if we do reverse course on immigration policy, I think, you know, part of what is going to solve that, you know, unfortunately, would be a recession where businesses stop hiring or close down. And that's, you know, kind of the worst of all worlds. So I think that labor is going to be um, a continued issue, but (laughs) it also may be the issue that keeps us out of a technical recession, you know, for the reasons I just laid out. Okay, so let, let's go with that. So I had Professor Danny Blanchflower, who's a labor economist, did some work with the UK Central Bank. And he has a, a whole bunch of research around happiness and how do you measure happiness. And he made the argument that inflation is far better than taking the pain of a recession because studies show that you'll be way unhappier, obviously, with a recession than if you're working, even if your real income is, is negative year over year. Talk about the quality of, of jobs in this cycle, because, yes, there's a lot of desire and need for skilled labor. But I don't know if on mass the jobs are considered better than they were pre-COVID or if it's just one of those things where there really isn't just enough skilled specific labor that you can hire these people to actually do that specific labor. Talk, talk about that a little bit. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty widespread. You know, certainly at the lower service end, there are a lot of openings, and those are the kinds of jobs that, that people are sort of loathe to take. And even though wages have been increasing, they haven't been increasing at the same rate of, as inflation. And it's, you know, a little a bit of a challenge there, probably more of a challenge there. But, you know, up and down the spectrum, you know, particularly kind of in the, the middle of the spectrum, there are all kinds of very interesting companies that have, you know, tons of job openings. And even though they are saying they're seeing more applicants and it's, it's getting a little bit easier, you know, there's still a ton of availability. And so I think what we're going to end up with on the other side of whatever this ends up being is that we still end up with that supply demand mismatch a little bit because of the skills gap that we saw in 2019 before any of this and in early 2020 before any of this happened. 
And, you know, either there's going to have to be a different way to train people, there's going to be technology that, you know, takes uh, and, and supplements jobs in a different way, or you're going to see a flushing of businesses who just, you know, can't find the labor to compete. And my guess is probably a, a potpourri of all of those. You know, it's interesting to me about, about this talk around skill is that often you'll hear people come back and say, well, you know, machines are faster and smarter than humans, and the more advanced machines and algorithms get, the less you need actual people to do very specific jobs. But which is, I think, partially true. But the interesting thing about that, and this is not sort of going down the Luddite way of thinking about things, but if the Fed had kept rates normal, right? We didn't have negative real rates throughout all this, and that what, what's what's normal? What's normal? What year are we going? No, no, back no fair enough. No, that's a good point. No, right, right. Less, less abnormal, I guess. The way to say it. But, <laughs> okay. but, but on that point, but, but, but listen about it, right? So, so if the Fed actually had raised rates and kept the average terminal rate for interest rates higher. Well, that would have slowed technology adoption at least a little bit. That would have maybe kept people employed at least a little bit longer, right? So I, I want to hear your thoughts on sort of the interaction of how much of labor force displacement driven by technology is maybe driven by the Fed through very easy policies that actually benefit technology. Oh, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I think a very large portion of everything that we've seen has been monetary policy fiscal policy and other government policy. I mean, you can pretty much trace, you know, the lion's share of it back to that. And I, I think that you're you're completely spot on. It was amazing to me as somebody who has been screaming from the rooftops like, hey, you guys can't do this. You know, you can't print at this level. You can't take, you know, a third of the economy and turn it off and then pow try and power cycle it back on like you're power cycling a mo modem, like you can't do this. And then for Powell last year to come out and go, oh yeah, you know, we didn't realize the labor force was going to get disrupted. Oh, we didn't realize the supply chains. Like, really? We all realized it. Why are you in charge of these kind of you know, multi-trillion dollar decisions when you didn't see that? And, and either, you know, that was, you know, probably extremely dishonest or, you know, it's just, just shows incredible incompetence. And either way, the outcome is the same. I don't think that we need to, to sit and debate that. But yeah, these these policies at every at everything that we are facing, inflation overall, specific energy inflation, labor disruption, you know, paying people to stay home instead of paying them to stay at work, just a change in the way that you structured the relief would have completely changed the dynamic. And just the length of, of how they did everything. I mean, even if you're somebody who believed the Fed needed to intervene in March, you know, 2020, which, you know, I'm, I'm not one. I think if, if we would have not had Fed intervention, this whole thing wouldn't have lasted more than two weeks and we would have gone to mitigation strategies. But, you know, even if you feel like they needed to at that point, by June of 2020, you had the markets hitting an all-time high. At that point, you got to say to yourself, okay, we, we don't need to support the market anymore. We can stop and we can normalize interest rates. We can stop adding to our balance sheets. And you know, the fact that they just continue to do it, I mean, th the reality is they were still adding to their balance sheet last month. So now we've got this, you know, turn on a dime, you know, super behind the curve panic mode and just letting, you know, an, an entity, this government adjacent entity make this level of, you know, insane decisions that are impacting all of our lives is just reckless. It's filled with moral hazard. And I think is something that we really need to put under the microscope 
and stop, you know, once we get on the other side of this. So I shared at the top your, uh, it's hard to see it in the space, but it was the, the retweet with a comment, the Fed's pal, my goal is to get inflation down without a recession. <laughs> now, hold on, I want to I I take this from a, from a sort of a different direction than standard questions around recessions. But the, um, look, let, let's face it, I think it's, we'd all agree, it's not that the Fed can't pull this off, but the odds are probably very much against them, that they can actually bring inflation down without only not breaking the stock market along with it, but causing a recession, right, as a result of what typically happens, which is they over-tighten and they're always late. Okay. So, but, but, <laughs> I, but I am curious, though, your thoughts on, Carol, on how the pandemic may have changed the way that consumers uh, end up thinking about slowdowns, right? Meaning that if you have a recession and you start seeing some kind of a pickup in the unemployment rate, do you think that now we're spoiled to think that the Fed will swoop in immediately and and put so much more fuel on the fire that unemployment will never go to, gets above five percent because they'll be so quick to it because they did so in twenty twenty? Talk about how you think maybe expectations for cycle length may have changed here. So I'm super cynical on the Fed if you haven't figured that out already. And you know they have this stated dual mandate of you know maximum employment and stable prices, which I don't really think is their mandate. I think they have a, a two-tiered mandate, which is to support the market and to enable the government to continue to spend. And I, I think that's sort of the you know, not very well hidden, but hidden mandate. And I think they have painted themselves into a corner with both of those, just, you know, looking at the potential interest that we may have to, to pay on our national debt and you know, the projections for the doubling of that projected that we would see the 10 year at like 3% in 2029. So, you know, that kind of gives you a scope for, you know, yeah, that that was off um, by a ton. So I think they are painted into dovish policy. And whether it's, you know, another five or 10% tick, you know, tick down on the market, you know, or, or, or something where inflation you know, pulls back, but it's still at like, you know, 5%, but they go, oh boy, look at that. It's cooled off a ton. They're going to take whatever opportunity they can to try to, to, you know, go back to their dovish policy. And I think that's going to be where they're, they are comfortable for, you know, for as long as, you know, they can continue to run that scam. Do you think that if you have a recession and the Fed has to do an about face sooner than most think that incomes will go down that this these this these gains in income will evaporate i'm curious if you think there's maybe something different about the labor side where if you have a recession that income doesn't actually become uh, sort of a depreciating cash flow yeah i would think that the labor piece and just you know, just some of the the structural supply demand imbalances are what makes this kind of you know set of decisions and and point in history so different than when what we've seen previously you know as i mentioned i think that you know normally if you would have a recession you would see all of these people shedding their jobs but given the fact that we have so many jobs that are open and you know so many opportunities to kind of do your own thing I don't I think that's like the one place where you know it may not be a great scenario but you don't necessarily see this massive tick up in unemployment so that may be a saving grace you know we may end up with something that looks more like stagflation where the economy just kind of like sputters along and you still end up with this you know crazy elevated inflation 
And either, you know, that eats away, you know, at people's savings and, and, you know, changes their, their spending behavior, you know, in one way or another, you know, or we end up with a wage price spiral where, you know, people require bigger and bigger wages in order to, you know, fill whatever jobs are available and the businesses have to keep passing that along to the consumers and it becomes so expensive that the labor says, well, I need more money. And it just kind of becomes the self-fulfilling cycle. So, you know, several possibilities, you know, I don't have one that I feel like is like, oh, here's this like crazy optimistic one other than, you know, because of some of these, these weird scenarios that don't normally accompany a a cycle like this, that we just kind of get out of it, you know, after a couple of years where it's been bumpy, but not, you know, a total catastrophe. I'm curious, do you have, do you have a different perspective on that? No, I think that's probably, probably accurate. And this kind of, what what makes me a little bit hesitant in, in thinking that wages would start to drop is I do think there's a resurgence of realization that you need to have more bargaining power by labor. And that's where unions come in. Right. So so let's go with that also as a direction, because you're seeing some stories here and there where it's Amazon, Starbucks. You can debate about the reasoning from here to tomorrow. But you are seeing, I think, the early signs of a what I think could be a secular movement back towards unions and collective bargaining power by labor. What are your thoughts on the role of unions in a high inflation or maybe stagflation world? And if you are, I don't want to say pro-union or anti-union, but just how do you think about the role of unions in general when it comes to an economy like this? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, it's a challenge because a lot of the sort of pro-union legislation that has gone out has been very anti-small business and gig worker. And so I think that it's it's a very scary proposition where you could it could be, you know, kind of like everything else it sounds like a really good idea, but all it does is ends up you know, concentrating the economy further. I think it's right now something like one in every 60 workers works for Amazon or Walmart as it is, which is, you know, crazy <laughs> to think about. And you know, we want to preserve the opportunity for small business for something on the order of 60 million gig workers to be able to work flexibly. And it's been, it's proven difficult to see those sort of working side by side. And, you know, the current administration has been, you know, in favor of the PRO Act, which takes the sort of anti-freelancer legislation that came out of California, AB5, and potentially nationalizes it. I know it passed the House. I think it's sitting with the Senate right now. And the, and the Biden administration is very much in favor of it. So it could be where you know labor unions, which have been pretty unpopular for quite some time, use the inflationary pressure and the fact that wages have not kept pace with inflation and use that as you know to kind of create the stronghold, which you know short term may have some 
beneficial impacts, but long-term creates a drag on the economy and, and, and further centralizes the economy around these you know, handful of, of big businesses. So that, that Amazon stat was, was actually really interesting. And I do wonder if, if we're entering or maybe already in a world where every single industry is basically just run by one or two companies. Everything's either a monopoly or an oligopoly. And that makes, obviously, the odds stacks dramatically against small business owners, which still make up the vast majority of, of everything that we, we see. Talk about what got us here. I, I've heard Danielle DiMartino Booth, who I had on Space, make the argument that this is because you just don't have anti-monopoly laws. But I've also heard the argument that, well, if you have technology, it tends to be winner-take-all. And those who have the best algorithms have the most margin who can take out everybody else. Talk through how you think about things from that perspective. So first of all, love Danielle. She's super smart and everybody should follow her as well. So I tend to look at it through the lens of, you know, kind of decentralization versus central power and moving along the spectrum between free markets and central planning. And over time, we have given up more and more rights, more and more purview, more and more dollars from, you know, just general decentralization and the states to the federal government. If you look at the level that they've spent versus the population growth, it's disgusting. I think it's between like 2001 and like right before COVID, the population had grown about 14 or 15 percent and spending had increased 140 percent at the federal level in that same period of time. And then post-COVID, you know, it's crazy. It's like, you know, 300 plus percent, whatever it is. And, you know, does not, if you look at the budgets, does not look like it's, you know, slowing down to any sort of meaningful level. And so, you know, with that increased government concentration and purview and dollars, you know, they need to find the right allowances and or the right allies, excuse me, to, you know, sort of work with to fund their campaigns for compliance and whatnot. And so it's easier for them to deal with, you know, the 20 plus thousand big businesses that, by the way, you know, have lots of capital than it is to deal with 31.7 million highly decentralized, independent small businesses. And so I think, you know, that has sort of been the catalyst for tilting the scale. And so anything from additional legislation which you might think would be, you know, great, you know, and, and a way to keep uh, big business in check actually ends up doing the opposite. It ends up being very anti-competitive. You look at something like the Dodd-Frank laws, which were meant to rein in the big banks for taking on too much risk. What ended up happening, you know, based on putting those laws in place is it killed the formation of community banks. It killed small business lending. At the same time, big business lending went through the roof and the those companies that provide the lending to big businesses, which are the, the same banks that were trying to rein in, ended up having free reign. So, you know, it, it ends up being these good good intentions lead to you know where. And, and so I think that's really the, the consolidation of this like unholy triumvirate between big government, big corporate interests and big special interests really goes hand in hand. And it just, you know, keeps creating more barriers for that economic freedom and wealth creation for the average American. I'm sharing in the space, Carol Markowitz uh, talking about 
your book from a tw- in, the, in a tweet from uh, six, seven, or actually eight months ago. Let's talk about the war on small business for a moment, because I am a cynic, I think, like you. I would argue that whether you're a Republican or Democrat, both parties have had it out for small business. Now, that may be a controversial statement, but if you take it at its very simplistic level, Republicans tend to want to lower taxes. That helps the biggest of the big, obviously, because they're paying less absolute dollars. Uh, Democrats want to tax the very wealthy, but the reality is they're not taxing the corporations and the real wealth gap is not between Elon Musk and us. It's between Tesla and everybody else. Right? It's the company to the, co- to the person, not the person of the person. Talk about how you think about administrations and uh, roles that different administrations have had in terms of actually legitimately favoring small business, because I don't think any party now does. No, I mean, and that's the interesting thing. If you read my book, both parties get thrown under the bus uh, pretty substantially, because even though the Republicans talk a good game, their policies never sort of end up in the same place. So my thesis is that it really is a system systemic issue. And even something, you know, like the Trump administration was supposed to be this very pro-business administration. They come, you come up with the Tax Cut um, and Jobs Act. And that, if you were a kind of traditional corporation, well, I should take a step back and say ev- ev- almost everybody benefited from that. But if you were a traditional corporation, you benefited more than if you had a small business structure. <laughs> and you know, it's the same thing with you know, and again, I, I, this is very inconvenient for the Trump fans out there. And sorry to, to inform you of this, but 15 days to slow the spread came out of the Trump administration. I mean, their their playbook, even though they didn't directly shut down the small businesses, but their playbook that was followed by the different states was came out of the Trump administration in the middle of March of 2020. And they're the ones that came up with ideas like, hey, maybe you should close some gathering places. And then the relief funds, the way that those were structured, which did not do right by small businesses, came out of that administration. So while you know, certainly there were some benefits that came out there on that side, the, the supposed supposedly more business-friendly side, like you said, you can point out major issues, you know, in terms of small government and, you know, free market, true free market activity that just doesn't come out regardless of who, you know, occupies Congress or the White House. And that, that is the challenge is that, you know, because they have the purview, they can make the decisions and those decisions are always going to go to those that have the, the, the lobbying power, the dollars to support campaigns and, and, you know, sort of that heft of compliance and, scratch our back, we'll scratch yours. And that's just never going to be the small business, which is why I always say we have to you know, kind of do an HGTV renovation here on the government and tear it back down to the to the studs <laughs> in order for us to fix the problem. Let's focus on the, on the term business friendly for a moment. And I'm smiling as I'm saying that because you often hear that among politicians, but I don't know if people really understand what business friendly means. Now, for me, it's about conditions that allows for a level playing field that allows for you know it to be more about skill and hard work as opposed to luck and who you know, right? But how do you define what makes an environment business friendly? What what things should be done by any administration to make the environment more business friendly for small businesses? 
I mean, the, the number one thing is to just get out of the way, stop putting up barriers and, you know, stop with, you know, regulations and, and other activities that uh, tend to favor one size business or one type of business over the other. Again, that's where they get their power. So it becomes very challenging. But if you ask most small business owner, they're not looking for a favor. They're just looking for these barriers and these, these extra things to be removed. It's insane. I mean, some of this is, is obviously federal, but a lot of it is at the state and local levels. But, you know, just kind of being a champion of removing barriers, I think, would go a long way. The kinds of things like I'm in, in Illinois, I live in Chicago, and, you know, our state brags about the fact that it has the most insurance carriers, workers' compensation insurance carriers than any other state. And so like me as a small business owner, I have people who work at home on their computers and I have to spend on each of them thousands of dollars getting workers' compensation insurance, you know, so that they don't, you know, trip on their bed, I guess, and, you know, fall over their laptops and you know that's money that goes away from you know things like marketing or paying them more or whatnot and it's you know one of you know a myriad one a myriad examples of you know the kinds of things that depending on the type of small business that you're going to face so you know really to be business friendly it's just purely less government and less you know tilting of the playing field yeah, real quick on that. No, so, so I'll talk from the perspective. So from my perspective, I use Twitter quite a bit, and I I use and I advertise the lead lag report, and and I can tell you, it really is true from my perspective, at least, that it's not just sort of something that people say. Twitter does, I think, have a hard time with effective monetization of ads. I don't see the same kind of intent which you would see from like Google Ads and other places. And on the higher bitter point, I think. I think everyone and Carol, you know, I think you put a couple of tweets on this too. Everybody would agree that Twitter is a fantastic property and asset, but no one seems to quite have an understanding of how to monetize it because the problem with information is that it wants to be free. Yeah, I, I think that you hit the nail on the head. I mean, the reality is, you know, take take aside the importance of the platform, you know, kind of as a media property and as a platform for us. From a business standpoint, there's a reason why the stock has been dead money since November of 2013 when it when it went public at a time when you saw Facebook, you know, gain like 4.6 times, the S&P 500 gain three times. You know, I, I think that it, it really, I mean, it only has about $5 billion in revenue. That's smaller than Lululemon. It's got a tiny operating margin. You know, obviously, recently it hasn't been profitable. So, you know, this is from a business model standpoint, you know, based on where it is today, not something that if you're running a business that is super profitable in other areas and have all of this greenfield in front of you, the kind of thing I think that you want to distract your team with. And I think that's why, I mean, a lot of other businesses have taken a look. I mean, Disney had taken a look at Twitter at one point in time. I know there was some interest, uh, at least theoretically, from Salesforce. Private equity obviously is out of the equation because of the financials. So, you know, this is the, the value that Elon is finding is, you know, I think more from a conceptual standpoint and an, its important standpoint than not to say that he won't be able to unlock some additional financial opportunities because I, you know, I've thought of many over the years, but I, it, it's not as straightforward as some might think. 
So maybe on that point, I guess that's an interesting thing to think through. How do you how can you tell if a business is mismanaged and can still succeed, or if it's just because the onset of the business model was never right to begin with? Because I wonder when I when I and I, I, obviously I love Twitter. I use Twitter <laughs> nonstop all day long, right? But but you know it's one of those things where it's it's kind of like that old saying when it comes to the app world. You have to distinguish between if it's a a feature or if it's a actual app full business, right? How do you, how do you think about that? Because I, I, I don't know if it's a function of Twitter being mismanaged or if it's just not something that can possibly be profitable to, while being consistent to what we've seen, you know, all these years. I mean, I think that you know, as a recovering investment banker, anytime that we would represent a company that was looking to buy another company, usually they would have some special area of expertise and something they felt like they could bring to the business or you know, some clear thing that, oh, if you tweaked X, Y, and Z, you know, that would shift the business. And I do think that there are a number of things that you can do for Twitter, and I'm not going to lay out too many of them. I've done a few in the past because I'm not giving away my information for free at this point. Twitter, Elon, if you want to hire me, let me know. But, uh, you know, I think that there are a number of things. I think one of the big challenges with Twitter, at least the perception, was that, you know, a lot of people who were working on, you know, product and monetization, you weren't sort of power strategic power users and you didn't really sort of understand the, the platform in the way that maybe some of the other people who use it regularly and also have business strategy minds have thought about it and so i think it's you know a very different property than you know facebook or an instagram as we talked about sort of the the first part of the call is more more of a, a traditional more of a media platform than a social platform and so that requires a different take on a monetization strategy and but you know even just things like the the rollout of blue i mean it took so long and you know the the features that the, they decided to include vis-a-vis the kinds of things that could provide value and what people were willing to pay for, you know, as somebody who has been a very active user was just a a head scratcher. And again, I don't, you know, we know organizations, especially big organizations, you know, sometimes it's hard to, to get consensus and things kind of come out that are, you know, in the middle of everybody else's consensus and not necessarily the best thing. But, you know, again, I do think it presents an opportunity, although I don't think it's the, the driver of the purchase. I wonder how how if this ends up being sort of a oddly enough a catalyst for some kind of a rebound in equities. And I know that sounds strange, but <laughs> you know, it's like if you're my because M and A has been you know you haven't really seen too many deals in general. I mean, I, I remember seeing I think a week or two ago that this is one of the worst starts for M and A in a long, long time. And you know, sometimes you just need these kind of things in the headlines to be reminders to just get the animal spirits you know juices going. I, I'm curious your thought on how things like this can impact investor sentiment more broadly and if you've seen kind of similar things historically? It's a really good question. I mean, I think one of the catalysts for the lack of M&A is just the incredible push for M&A that we've seen over the last couple of years. I mean, you had investment bankers you know, begging their clients, like, if you're going to do something, like, now's the time to do, because we don't know when the punch bowl is going to be taken away. And there was just, you know, such an epic amount. You know, we got into that silly place where we saw record SPAC deals. You know, it just got so far ahead of itself. I think that, yeah, I mean, listen, in in good or bad environments, your friendly investment banker is always going to be 
there, you know, proposing different opportunities. And, you know, I think the the potential margin pressure that, you know, some of these businesses may be facing, and particularly the ones that don't have the strong balance sheets to buy back stock and, you know, kind of pump up their EPS through financial engineering, you will have to kind of look, you know, can I, can I make it through this period or does it make sense um, for a strategic alternative? And, you know, I think it really depends, you know, on where they're, you know, what's been happening with their stock. If it, you know, Twitter, even though it got up to a, a very high level over the last, you know, 15 months or so, you know, since it's IPO, as we said, it's been pretty dead money. You know, if you had a stock that was, you know, you know, just continuing to climb up and is now seeing a little bit of a setback, I think you're probably more inclined to wait it out unless there was some, you know, really compelling strategic reason to do so otherwise. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's an accurate way to, to frame it. Again, everybody that's here, please make sure you follow Carol and check out the war on small business. All right, so final few minutes here. You mentioned earlier in the conversation, we went through a historic wealth transfer. I think many understand this. And the <laughs> and, and I put out that tweet and it gets quite a bit of engagement that, you know, since the pandemic, since COVID, you know, billionaires gained $2.1 trillion and everybody else got screwed with inflation. Talk through the wealth gap. And if you believe that it gets to a point where it can actually be stabilizing in terms of social mood and, and societal people because historically you look at major revolutions most things are largely driven because there is no middle class and it's just the very wealthy and everybody else yeah I, I think that I have you know kind of conflicting feelings you know inequality that is done through merit is one thing and I think that's something to be celebrated. Inequality that is driven by policy and based on who you know, which is, you know, Fed, the Fed policy, the government uh, fiscal policy and other policies that kept big companies open while, you know, their neighbor next door shut. That's incredibly problematic. And so the fact that we've had this historic transfer of wealth, not on the back of productivity or innovation, but on the back of policy is a huge problem. And yes, people are very upset about it. And I think that, you know, we'll see as inflation continues. One of the things I'm very concerned about, you know, from the decisions that have been made around energy policy, both at the government level and through the ESG push, is that, you know, we may see food insecurity and, and starvation around the globe next year and, you know, the potential for riots and, you know, those kinds of things, the social contagions, you know, can spill over. And so I do think this gap, this haves and have nots, whether it's, you know, the picking of winners and losers, the deciding, you know, who gets to thrive and you know, who has to fight to survive, the differential in the dollars, I do think that that is a very serious issue. And, you know, not only is it a moral issue, because the, the government shouldn't be choosing winners and losers, but it can lead to serious destabilization. And, you know, we, we need to, to work to make sure that kind of stuff doesn't happen in the future, and that people have a clear path, you know, to, to understanding, hey, this was this was wrong, 
and and we're not going to let it happen again and we're going to work to support economic freedom and wealth creation opportunities for everyone because that's what it's about it's about having those equal opportunities and right now that's just not happening yeah i just wonder how much of that the most recent and by most recent i'm saying last decade let's say uh, how the most recent acceleration wealth gap if that's driven by policies or if that's driven by the exponential nature of technology. And what I mean by that is with the amount of progress and, and sophistication of algorithms obviously is at an all-time high. But as that was occurring and you started getting some, some of those effects of that exponential efficiency of technology and algorithms, that resulted in you needing less labor, less people. You could end up, again, you know, having that algorithm replace that trader that was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, whatever it would be. How do you think about sort of that aspect of it? Because I do think that that's, it's one of those things where you can also make a case that this was inevitable. The wealth gap is going to keep getting wider and wider because it's a direct function of the exponential effects of technology. Yeah. I mean, again, that's the piece I don't think people should be upset with. You know, if it's done by productivity and technology and, and merits, that's fine. But when you have companies who are getting access to super cheap capital and allowed to you know, continue to run losses where their competitors, you know, don't have that same sort of benefits on the back of, you know, this, you know, insane policy that completely disrupted risk in the markets, you know, that's a huge challenge when you have you know, private equity firms who are basically, you know, taking free loans and competing with people to buy their first homes, people who, you know, haven't gotten any return on their savings unless they're taking on outside risk, you know, that's the problem. And so I think it, it's it's nuanced. It's you have to take, you know, a piece of it is obviously, you know, inevitable, but the scale that it's at, you know, the fact that you know, while, you know, all of these small businesses were being murdered by mandates, you know, hundreds of thousands, 400,000 by June of 2020, you collectively saw, you know, seven tech companies gain $3.4 trillion in value. Now, granted, some of that has come back, but, you know, that kind of wealth gap is pretty much 100% policy driven on the revenue side. It's, hey, we closed down your competitor. And so now they're coming and shopping with you. And on the, uh, you know, the inflation of the, the market and asset side, you know, that's strictly on the Fed. So I think that we have to sort of part and parcel. And unfortunately, as we know, nuance is very, very difficult these days. But yeah, I, I was going to that say, that's, ex- like, that's like a hard ask, Carol. Yeah. yeah hard <laughs> ask. No, no, because I think, it, I mean, what you're, what you're advocating is that people actually think about the, the source of it and, and where it's really right. coming from. But, but you're right, that nuance, that distinction, at the end of the day, will simply go back to some political one-liner that just sounds... Sounds yes. good, but really it's not right. Correct. Every, every single time. <laughs> the one thing everybody can count on. So listen, everybody here that's joined for the hour, please make sure, again, you follow Carol Roth. Check out The War on Small Business. And as usual, Carol, I always appreciate the time, the friendship, uh, and thank everybody that keeps coming back day after day. It's much appreciated. Thank you, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction.
Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.